Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Our mission, as always, is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. And given our mission, today's show is uh, particularly apropos. Uh, last week, at, uh, FCC Chairman Janikowski issued a Gigabit City Challenge, a challenge to industry and communities and other stakeholders to get at least one citywide gigabit network in every state. And needless to say, media response was pretty swift, and the pundit's response was even swifter. Uh, I would say the responses range from supportive to cynical and everything in between. Having worked with communities on broadband strategy planning, I know that uh, saying that you want broadband and actually making it happen are, are two very different things. Communities, providers, lawmakers, and others need to know, understand, and prepare for a lot of heavy lifting in order to move from policy statements about broadband to actually getting networks in place. Uh, to help with this understanding, I have brought together a distinguished group of experts and advocates uh, who are going to explore the question, you know, how do we get to that, uh, meeting that gigabit challenge, how do we get there from here? Today we have um, Jim Baller, who is the uh, president of Baller, Herps and uh, Law, uh, Law Group. Uh, he's uh, been in the industry for quite a while and is very familiar with um, uh, the legalities and, and the policies that are associated with uh, with broadband. We have uh, Masha Zager, who is the editor of Broadband Communities magazine. So she has a good view of uh, both the private sector and community efforts uh, in the pursuit of broadband. We have Christopher Mitchell, who is the director of telecommunications as Commons Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And he's been tracking gigabit cities now for a uh, number of years and really knows what challenges uh, face uh, these communities moving these projects forward. Uh, we also have Arkansas Senator, State Senator Lynn Chesterfield, and she has been a big advocate in her state legislature for broadband and has been a guest on this show and is very uh, knowledgeable from the community perspective and, and also from the legislative perspective uh, what's necessary to move these kinds of projects forward. And then we also have Gary Evans, who is the CEO of Hiawatha Broadband Communications and who has a number of years' experience in developing public-private partnerships and, and working as, a, you know, as the primary provider uh, in getting networks built out and organized and managed. So, everyone, thank you very much for being a uh, guest on the show today, and uh, let's have a great conversation about the Gigabit City Challenge. Now, let's start with first question. Is uh, Chairman Janikowski's initiative a, po a positive um, policy directive, and is it achievable? Can we get there from here? And we'll start with Jim. Uh, Craig, thanks very much for having me here. Um, I think that uh, Chairman's initiative will be as good as we can make it. Uh, it's up to us. He's uh, created a platform on which we can uh, build, and uh, we should take maximum advantage of it. Great. Um, Masha, what's your take? 
I say, yeah, I agree with Jim that it's positive in, in the sense that it's, it's very good for local officials to be thinking about the benefits of ultra-broadband for their communities, and it's, it's great that he's raised this as an issue and a challenge. Um, it, it's achievable uh, in the sense that there are existing fiber-to-the-home providers that could be offering gigabit service to their residents um, that are not doing so today. Um, whether they can do so uh, economically to a large number of people is another question, which I would want to get into later. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are also other other um, fiber-to-the-home projects that are in process today and are, are planning to offer gigabit services. However, communities that don't have a fiber-to-the-home network today are not going to get one built and up and running in two years. It's generally a much longer process to get something started. So his his challenge is really maybe should be interpreted as well. We should all be working on doing this uh, by by 2015 rather than have one in operation. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, what's your take on the, on this uh, initiative? Uh, we view it as a, a first good step. Um, you know, no one's going to be fooled into thinking that uh, this alone will uh, solve all our problems. Uh, it's incredibly exciting to hear the FCC uh, talking about gigabit networks and recognizing that uh, the nation will benefit by investing in uh, much faster networks. Um, and so uh, I, I think that uh, we would certainly, we certainly welcome it. Um, I think we have to uh, reward the step by succeeding and and doing what we can to make sure that we build as many of these networks as we can, or we um, recognize those who have already taken many steps in that direction. Um, and I would say that um, in response to to Masha, which is a, a very good point in terms of you're not going to get a fiber to the home network. Two years is a is a fair amount of time in order of for communities that may have already started down this path to to get supercharged and to uh, um, be invigorated. So uh, I think that this announcement um, uh, hopefully will be the first of more that will make it uh, uh, create that will create a climate of uh, encouraging communities to do this and getting rid of barriers. Um, it, but it's a it's a good first step. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator, what's your your take on this uh, initiative? I think it's a positive step, and anything that's positive cannot be all bad. And so we're looking forward to it, and hopefully it will lead to partnerships uh, among levels of government that will be productive for the citizens that we hope to serve. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary, what's your what's your take as a, as a provider uh, on this initiative? Well, I think that, uh, as the uh, previous folks have said, um, anything that sheds uh, more attention on the need for broadband is a positive development. Uh, for those of us who were tremendously disappointed with the definition of broadband in the national plan, uh, I think this acknowledges clearly uh, the moves that have to be made to get us into the 21st century. Um, I'm hoping, as Chris indicated, that there is more to come. Uh, I heard Masha say uh, that uh, the economy or the financial situation regarding uh, offering gigabit connectivity is perhaps a problem. I see it just a bit differently. Uh, I see it as an applications issue, frankly. 
when broadband becomes indispensable to the people who use it, uh, there will be more and more demands for capacity. But as a first step, I think this ought to be cheered. Mm -hmm. Now, the idealist in me will sometimes wonder, you know, have we set the goal, have we set the bar high enough? And um, I'd like to get your take on, you know, there have been comments along the lines of, well, you know, we have a number of these networks in place and a uh, number of communities are already building networks and so forth, that this seems a little, little wimpy. Uh, do you feel that, you know, we could have been or the chairman could have been bolder and maybe more importantly, if we were to go, go bold, you know, and make a bolder goal uh, for ourselves, does there exist the, the resources and the wherewithal to actually move the, comp the country aggressively forward on, 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 a bigger, on a bigger goal? And we'll, we'll start with Chris this time. Sure. I, I think um, having an advanced network like this in every state is pretty bold. Um, and so um, I wouldn't necessarily say we needed to, to be more bold. Uh, what I think is we need to some extent is the FCC to use the power it has to uh, make it uh, to lower the existing barriers. Um, and so I don't think we're really constrained in terms of building many of these networks. Um, local communities can build these networks. They can borrow for them using their existing authority, um, especially in the 30 states where there um, are not explicit barriers preventing them. Um, I think, um, you know, we can be successful, um, particularly if some of the state legislatures take um, this call from the FCC seriously and they reevaluate whether they want to discourage uh, communities from building networks. Um, but, you know, as we said, I think it's it's a good first step. If if the chairman really was inspired by CES, um, then, uh, then uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a terrific first step to building the networks we need. Um, so I... I I can go on, but I'm going to hand it over to our panelists. <laughs> uh, Senator, what's what's your take? Are we bold enough? Are we kind of half-stepping? Where where do you see this in terms of, I don't know, should we be more aggressive? One, one of the things we've got to do is to make sure that the audience we're trying to reach is ready for the message we're trying to send. Uh -huh. And one of the things that we're having difficulty with here is that we have a population, we have a youthful population that sees the necessity. And then you have the blackberries who think that that's enough. But I think uh, what Connect Arkansas has been doing is to educate uh, individuals who we might call senior citizens or individuals who are a little bit older as to the need for broadband connectivity. Until you have an audience that's ready to accept the services you're trying to render, it will do us no good. And so we've got to educate that public so that they understand the necessity for it. And I keep using the analogy of, of, of electricity as I've done before. It was not seen as a necessity until the neighbor got it and then the next neighbor got it. And as we roll these things out, then we build not only capacity, but we build interest. And when we build interest, the capacity grows. Okay. Uh, Gary, to pick up on your, you know, you had a little different perspective. Uh, in the net of it, do you think this was a bold enough, is this a bold enough mission for us, or should we be striving for more? Um, you know, I, I always want us to strive for more, uh, Craig, but I, I see it as a bold step that um, 
that cries out for some follow-up rhetoric. The first one is, how do we tie these cities together to make an even more powerful force in the country? And then the other thing, I was disappointed that the chairman uh, didn't single out U.S. Ignite uh, in his comments uh, because clearly, for me, the application side is is a major, major factor uh, in us being able to promote the construction and use of high-speed networks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Jim, what's what's your take? Well, bold, I bold. <laughs> I, I agree with everyone uh, that. The um, uh, uses are uh, the key, and uh, we're at a stage where we know that we are inevitably going to fiber. We know that our competitors around the world are uh, moving in that direction. We know there are going to be tremendous benefits to the countries and the residents and businesses and institutions of the countries that get there first, that form the the platforms for innovation and development of new uses. But we're in a period of transition where the visionaries see where we're going but are constrained by the economic realities of building the networks and having them uh, pay for themselves. That said, the, the idea of having a challenge like this uh, I might remind us, is not new to uh, Chairman Janikowski. The month before the National Broadband Plan was issued, he delivered a speech at Nehruk saying that uh, we've got a plan, the plan is going to have its its goals of 100, 100 uh, megabits per second for 100 uh, million households by 2020, but we need uh, bigger uh, test beds across the country. We want to lead the world in, in test beds. And as uh, Gary just noted, uh, over, over the, the last few years, we've had a series of initiatives uh, from various sources. Uh, U.S. Ignite is one of them. There's also the GIGU initiative. There's uh, Gigabit Squared's part of the GIGU initiative. Uh, there are a number of cities that have already taken this step, including Chattanooga and uh, Bristol, Virginia, Wilson, North Carolina, and um, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Others are capable of it. And what, what I think that an, an initiative like this does is it unlocks uh, the constraints that people uh, feel, they can get galvanized, they can renew their energy for projects of this kind, and at the same time in programs like U.S. Ignite and others, uh, there are products and services under development that will uh, demonstrate and take advantage of these networks. It's a multi-faceted multi, uh, challenge and we've got to be working on lots of different levels to move them all ahead at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, Masha, you have a good 
view of the world, you know, from your perch there as as editor of the magazine, what do you think? Did did the chairman go bold enough, or could we be setting bigger, better goals for ourselves? I I think that gigabit is the right goal um, for the, for now, uh, for or for residential. Uh, I would have preferred a bolder initiative in terms of a more uh, a larger number of cities. Um, basically, he's and also in terms of of the help he's willing to provide, as Christopher mentioned. Um, but I, I think basically it's this challenge, aside from the putting the vision out there and getting people excited about it, which is good, it duplicates the challenges already made by the GIGU and U.S. Ignite projects, which others have mentioned, which are wonderful projects and, and are offering more concrete support in the, you know, U.S. Ignite in terms of um, in terms of getting the applications there and GIGU in, in the sense of getting people organized to, to do this. Uh, also, the one gigabit city per state is, is perhaps enough to form an application test bed which, which helps develop the next generation applications that Gary points out that we need, but it's not enough to provide a market for those applications, mm -hmm. especially if um, if we consider affordability. Um, so, uh, so yes, I would have liked to see a, a larger initiative and and more help to get there. Mm -hmm. Craig, no, can I? I, can I <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I think two of us want to jump in here. Yeah, so this is Chris. I just wanted to expand on that. Um and I think Jim you're giving me an opportunity if not I'm sorry for being rude yeah, but go ahead. the um I uh, I do think I think Masha's correct and and I've been very critical of the FCC for a variety of things. But I think that this is a good bold initiative from this FCC because you have to recognize the power of the carriers in Washington and if if they had come out with a truly bold initiative that was would have knocked all of us backwards then they probably would have incited the carriers to to um, give a whole bunch of money to the Congress critters, and then they would have been on the FCC and probably taken away FCC authority. And so it's important, I think, to, to have a context. Uh, we need to recognize that this is a, a terrific step forward for what we have in terms of an FCC, uh, in terms of uh, the chairman's past uh, performance. Um, and we also have to recognize that, that we need to change more things if we're going to have an FCC that's going to take the actions that we would like to see it take. Mm -hmm. And no, Craig, yeah. I was, yeah, yeah. was going to make a, a little different point from the one that Chris made, but I agree with everything that Chris said. When you take a look at the way that this uh, challenge is structured, the idea of asking for at least one city in all 50 states is interesting in that it has certain implications. Now, we have uh, 19, 20 states that have uh, barriers, and um, by uh, singling out all 50 states, that implies that we have to look at the barriers in uh, the various states and do something about them if we're going to meet that challenge. So to that extent, uh, the, the structuring of the challenge as being at least one in 50 states uh, carries a political dimension, I think, that uh, is also an opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. Now, Jim, now again, you have a, a pretty broad view of uh, you know a lot of things that are going on within broadband. 
to, to Masha's point about, you know, we've got the Gig.U initiative and we've got uh, Gigabit Square, you know, doing their thing and so and, and U.S. Ignite, can this uh, policy statement, can this challenge perhaps unite the uh, these various initiatives, uh, say, more effectively to come together and move things forward? Well, I think the the people who are doing the projects are all united. Uh, we we are uh, constantly getting together with one another, supporting one another, and all that. So there's no question that the folks who are doing the gigabit um, stuff, you know, the people at the White House, uh, Lavgonic, the others that we've mentioned, we're all coordinating and helping one another to the extent that we can. What this initiative does, I think, uh, provides a form of uh, validation uh, from high on at the FCC, and it provides also a process that will include uh, workshops and uh, development of uh, uh, best practice uh, resources and so on and so forth. You know, so these these things exist in part, but uh, the FCC is going to add uh, some uh, organizing steps to this process. But where I keep coming back is that um, it's up to us. Uh, it's an opportunity in and of itself. It's not enough to move the meter. We have to do that. We have to uh, take advantage of it. We have to stir up other people, uh, citing the initiative as confirmation that we're on the right track. And then if we can do that, then the initiative can serve as a pebble in the in the pond that that will spread in its impact. Mm-hmm. Now let's um, let's uh, change direction here just a little bit. Um, we've got um, cities such as uh, Chattanooga and Lafayette. I mean, we sort of have the uh, the usual suspects, if you will, whenever people talk about gigabit networks. But there actually are quite a few other gigabit networks already in place. I want to, you know, pose this to um, to, to Chris and and Masha. Uh, you know, what are some of those other communities we may not have heard about a lot, but have gigabit networks? And and also, what's the I don't know the one common thread that seems to run through those communities being able to get these networks online? So maybe we we'll start with uh, Masha. Okay, well, uh, Christopher probably knows more of these than I do, but uh, among the municipalities, there, there are the Utopia cities, which is 11 or so cities in, in Utah that have a shared um, fiber-to-the-home network. There's uh, Morristown in Tennessee. There's Bristol, Tennessee, Bristol, Virginia, uh, and underway Seattle, Sandy, Oregon. But um, th- those are the community uh Initiatives, but there are also many competitive providers, which is very interesting that are that are providing uh, gigabit services. Um, the first one, the very first one, which we wrote about in the magazine in 2007, was a company called Paxio, uh, which is right there in Oakland, uh, mm-hmm. Craig, um, uh, and and they're small scale but they are still offering gigabit services throughout the bay area also SonicNet in the bay area google of course um a company called wolf internet that can bring uh gigabit services to to uh, 
multifamily apartment communities. Uh, there's a new a new network called RST Fiber being built in North Carolina that's just starting up. There's Hiawatha, which uh, Gary can tell us about. Uh, Gigabit Squared is starting one in Chicago. Case Connection Zone in in um, which is done by Case Western Reserve University in Cincinnati, City Link Fiber in New Mexico, and probably many more. And these these tend to be small, uh, either profit making or nonprofit uh, organizations that are very agile and, and are able to do things that that um, uh, incumbent providers, both both large and small, have difficulty. Mm -hmm. Uh, before we shift to Chris, uh, we have a caller. I want to make sure I get that person in if we still have if we haven't lost them. Hang on one second, and I'll get back to Chris. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation. Do we have a caller? Hello. Hmm, we might have lost this one. Uh, I re I should remind folks that if you do call in. Um, there's no hold music and there's no real indication that you're connected. So if you if you if you do dial in and you get a, a silence, uh, you're still in the queue. Uh, but we don't have a way of um, I don't know pumping in some sort of cold music or whatever. So sorry about that for whoever we just lost. If you want to call back in, uh, we'll we'll be on alert and catch your call. All right. So Chris, you were gonna sort of fill in maybe some additional. Um, cities, communities that have gigabit networks, and again, you know, what's the common thread that got these folks, you know, to to cross that finish line? Oh, common thread. I never, I never put a common thread. Um, you know, basically, um, a, a sincere interest in providing great service to communities and a vision that sees beyond what's needed today and tomorrow and next week. Right. I think Masha left such a, a great list that there's not many I could add to it. Um, uh, I think Burlington, Vermont um, has passed more than 80% of the city, and uh, they're offering a gigabit to those who um, who have the opportunity to be connected. There's um, a minority that are not able to connect that, but um, there's a, a definitional issue to some extent with this challenge, I think. Some of the cities that appear to be listed uh, don't connect everyone, and in fact, um, you know, the one that may have been the most inspirational, um, or at least have attracted the most news coverage, Google. You know, they're not going to offer uh, service to every last person, although they they came pretty, they're coming pretty close. Um, and so, you know, we can talk about cities that you've profiled in the past, Greg, like Santa Monica, where you know um, many businesses have access to 10 gig. Um, just about any fiber to the home network could do a gig if they wanted to. Uh, sometimes there's uh, some work that needs to be done or equipment that needs to be replaced. But you know, I was just talking to people down in southwest Minnesota who are um, connecting nine towns now, I believe, and uh, they their base connection is uh, 30 down and 20 up, but they can get a gig to just about anyone who would want it. You know, they might need a day to set it up, but um, they're right there. Uh, and so in terms of the common thread, what we see is um, to just pile on a little bit for what Masha said is certainly a dedication to serving the community. Um, I categorically reject the idea that we need better applications to justify a gig. Um, I think Gary uh, might need those uh, for a business case. I think um, a lot of businesses need those for a business case. Um, I think that cities 
when they're building networks, uh, just like they built highways uh, long before there was enough traffic to justify them. Um, they're supposed to build for the future. And so um, market-based providers or, or those who are responding strictly to demand may want applications for a gig, but I think a lot of cities and, and, uh, and communities want to over-provision to make sure that everyone has a good opportunity, uh, to make sure that they um, have opportunities to innovate, um, and generally to ensure that there's a good experience on the network. Because, uh, you know, if you have a gigabit network to run a gigabit application, you're doing it wrong. If you want to run an application that uses a gigabit, you should have a 10 gigabit network, sort of the way networks work. Right. And I want to add one point to that before we move on to the next question. Uh, when we discuss this issue of, you know, the applications and the, the pushback is, well, who needs a gig? You know, I, I always contend that it's not any one person needing a gig or even one business, but when you have a multitude of businesses and you have a multitude of individuals, being able to have those folks work concurrently is why you need the, the massive speed. So it's not just about the individual, but like say, for example, you know, you're, you're a small community and you have a thousand businesses, small, large, and different. Um, if you want those folks to have serious capacity anytime, night, or day, you've got to build to the multitude, not just the this idea of an individual application. So I think that's my, my, my thought on that one. Uh, uh, can, I, can I express a dissenting opinion here? Jim, um, go ahead. It's, it's partially dissenting and not, not entirely. It is quite true that there are going to be some communities, uh, especially those that have strong champions with uh, great vision, good communication skills and lots and lots of endurance who will uh, galvanize the community and the community will step forward and do it. But there are also many, many communities, and I'd say perhaps a great majority of them, that are uh, conservative in the sense that they, do, they feel they do need to see a system that will uh, pay for itself over a reasonable period of time. And uh, to communities like that, uh, the the need for uh, services or at least um, anchor uh, institutions to uh, make the project viable uh, on its own terms is going to be a very important consideration. With the uh, great variety of communities we have across the country, uh, I couldn't agree more with the fundamental philosophy of uh, Chris's organization that uh, our main goal uh, should be uh, local choice and that communities ought to be free to choose their own destiny and work toward them in the way that their community feels best. And we will see if that's the... Um, uh, the underlying uh, philosophy that governs us that communities come out in very many different ways on these projects. Mm -hmm. Some will create their networks. Others will want to work with the private sector. Uh, some will uh, just want to leave it to the private sector, but it ought to be their choice. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree. Uh, Craig, this is Gary. As a yeah. follow-on on to Jim, and again, I... I, I probably disagree with, with Chris in some ways, certainly not in others. 
but the fact of the matter is it doesn't really make any difference who is building the network. Uh, few cities today uh, can afford to build networks without seeking help from the financial markets, uh, which means that the ability to repay those dollars is essential. And that requires the ability to make certain that the subscribership is sufficient uh, to retire the bonds or the debt. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, now let's move on a little bit here. Uh, Senator, Senator Chesterfield, from your perspective, what needs to happen at the legislative level to create a greater balance between communities and consumers and the larger telecom companies in particular that tend to have lobbyists that you know live in state capitals and i think it's a very real issue when we talk about broad, you know getting broadband to more places that we have to address you know who influences state legislation that can facilitate or impede um you know broadband uh, moving forward what are your thoughts on that we have been meeting regularly um on the issue, and, and I'm just fascinated to hear about uh, the communities, the local communities that have taken the initiative to push broadband accessibility forward. Ours has been more at the state level. And at one time we were having conversations that did not include our providers. And so what we have done is deliberately include them in all of our discussions because they are major stakeholders in this proposition. But please understand that even at at this level, whether providers are here every day, at the end of the day, the citizen, the individual citizen, will determine what happens, and that person can only determine that by the information that he or she has. I've listened to what uh, all of the individuals on on your show are saying, but I would say to you that the average person does not know anything at all about what the FCC has done or whatever it has pro- provided. And so it's up to us to use the bully pulpit here at the legislature to inform our citizenry. If we sit down and talk with people, and one of the pieces of legislation that I've had since I've had some difficulty uh, engaging individuals and moving out into communities that are not viewed as assets but rather as liabilities is to put forward the idea of the provider of last resort. If there's nobody willing to step up what will we do to make sure that that community and many of our communities in Arkansas, the vast majority are not urban centers. We are a small state and we have a number of small areas with small governments that maybe cannot afford it. Those who can, we've got to get out of their way and allow that to happen because we have school districts who want to do this. We're looking at at, um, cities and towns that may want to do it, but what we've got to do is get out of their way and provide them with the opportunity to go forward without all of the um, technical difficulties that sometimes accrue to this. So I think by bringing everyone to the table, by engaging the public in the knowledge of what can be done, visiting with um, city, county, local uh, authorities about what is available and informing them of what is going on in other areas would be the best way that we could do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and in that in that vein, um, I, you know, I think in some of the communities where there is the greatest amount of advancement uh, in, in, in a fairly short periods of time, 
have been where you've had smaller telecom companies, smaller telephone co-ops that work with the local community rather than, you know, try to help legislate against it. Are there ways in which, again, coming at this from, from the state legislative perspective, that state legislatures can foster more of that kind of positive interaction, that positive partnership, uh, again, you know, to move things forward? I don't know if, like, maybe specific well, types of laws or specific types of initiatives or incentives. Well, there may very, very well be, but we're dealing with harsh economic conditions at this time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're trying to do is just simply find money to continue uh, to fund uh, Connect Arkansas, which has been that group which has provided the connect the connectivity for the state of Arkansas. Those financial constraints are going to have um, a very chilling effect on us being able to give incentives, as I would like to see given, to enhance the opportunity to increase access. So we're going to have to look at very, very closely what is available financially through the state. And with states fighting for Medicare, um, just to maintain the current funding for the programs, we're going to have to look at and try to influence individuals to say that this is just as important and perhaps in the near future may be more important as we look at telemedicine, as we look at education, as we look at everything basically that is going to impact the state. We've got to look at it in terms of broadband access, broadband connectivity, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Senator, I wish we could clone you and uh, spread oh. you out to the 50 states. <laughs> some people might want to spread me out, but just by chopping me up. But we, we've had some. <laughs> we've had some. We've we've really, um, especially in the interim. Here in the session, it's more difficult. But in the interim, we have tried to take this message on the road by having. Um, our committees meet throughout the state, not just in urban areas, uh, urban centers, uh, as such we have here, but in smaller rural areas and visiting with individuals, expressing our desire to do more and hoping that the groundswell will be from the bottom up because as citizens say, we want this, we have a better opportunity then to uh, demand that we be a part of the budgetary process and move this forward. hmm now, um, Jim, I, w- I want to get your perspective, too, because you've dealt with a lot of state legislative bodies and so forth. And uh, what's your take in terms of, um, you know, how we can get legislators to be more, I don't know, proactive uh, or, or somehow lessen the or, or increase the, the influence of constituents uh, in, in, the, in these discussions and laws that are created? Well, um, this has come in stages, and over the years, uh, we've had uh, waves of uh, bills uh, proposed and passed by the uh, uh, carriers, and then we've had years in which uh, uh, the educational process has worked well, and um, uh, entities like Google and, and others have uh, made the case for uh, barriers being uh, contrary to the interest of the communities involved and to the private sector and to America's global competitiveness, we are always at a strong disadvantage when the carriers 
decide to go on campaign, invest huge sums of money in it, and uh, uh, they they have far far deeper and greater resources than than we have, and yet we we need to keep at it. We need to uh, provide uh, the education. We need to counter the uh, uh, misstatements and uh, uh, omissions of the carriers in in their campaigns. The um, uh, issues raised are often the same issues that were raised uh, against uh, municipal electric utilities a century ago. The answers are the same, and it's a question of uh, getting the boots on the ground. Uh, we've been very successful in campaigns where we have had uh, strong uh, strong efforts by lots of people, the, the uh, uh, national and local organizations that support uh, municipal choice, the private sector side by side with us. When a, a legislative campaign happens, you've got to literally be in the hallways day in and day out throughout the legislative session, uh, countering uh, statements, uh, responding to proposed changes in, in the rules, providing amendments of your own. There's, there's no substitute for that um, retail involvement. And um, uh, we, we need to use every piece of uh, information that we have at our hands and in that context, an initiative like this uh, can only help. We expect some more battles this year, uh, and we would uh, expect to uh, try to rally as much support as possible and use everything we can, including the Gigabit Initiative, in our favor. Mm -hmm. Let me just say this, if, if I may, Craig, if, yeah, if, go ahead. if you don't mind. There are some things that are going to drive the connectivity issue. And one of the main ones is going to be Common Core. Every, well, over 40 school, 40 states have decided that they're going to sign on to, to the Common Core for education. In order for their children to take the Common Core, they must take it via Internet. If parents want their kids to be successful, then they're going to demand that those children have access to broadband so that they can practice it at home. Otherwise, we're providing a, we're creating a digital divide that will be horrific. The other piece is going to have to drive it, and I think we'll drive it, are the opportunities for telemedicine that are available now as a result of the Affordable Health Care Act. Sometimes things drive things that aren't necessarily a part of what we think. If education, if the education of our children is inextricably intertwined with uh, gigabyte service, then we're going to be looking at expansion. If the opportunity to provide health care for our citizens is inextricably intertwined with uh, connectivity, then we're going to be looking at expansion. So I'm thinking that there are things that are of importance to the community that can help to drive the expansion of what it is we're talking about today. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I think education is universal in every state, and the majority of our states are looking at that connectivity. So 
you have some ways of getting to the community and saying, we need to level the playing field so that all kids who are taking this common core will have access not just at school but at home, and that too can lead to some expansion. The one mm-hmm. thing I would add to that is that uh, over the years, the single most common and uh, important driver has been economic development. Uh, That's true. And education has been a close second. Healthcare now is uh, uh, becoming widely recognized as a third uh, leg of the stool, and there are others. But those three are the ones that, um, you know, when the uh, incumbents talk about uh, unfairness and all the advantages that communities have and so on and so forth, our uh, our main points have always been economic development, economic development, educational opportunity, economic development, and now uh, and now with people like the senator and with um, the growing recognition that you can't do anything anywhere in our society that's meaningful, particularly in education and economic development and healthcare without access to the Internet, uh, it ought to be easier for us to uh, educate members of state legislatures and the public. Uh, Craig, this is Gary. I I, uh, suspect that most of you read with interest, as did I yesterday, the uh, New York Times editorial uh, piece by Susan Crawford, who had an interesting take on on this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, She noted uh, that in um, literally 20 states, laws sponsored by incumbent network operators have uh, raised barriers. That's certainly true in Minnesota. And uh, But the point she made, and I quote, uh, in response, Congress must act to restore local communities' right to self-determination by preempting these unfair and anti-competitive state laws. Um, a very interesting take on um, the issue of how we get there. Mm-hmm. But my suspicion, Jim and Mosh, is that the lobbying in Washington is just as serious as the lobbying in St. Paul, Minnesota. Well, uh, well, it is, and um, uh, it's uh, it's difficult because uh, you know the lobbying in Washington uh, is um, uh, complicated by people being here from all over the country, and uh, uh, champions come and go uh, from the legislature. Uh, Rick Boucher of uh, uh, Virginia was uh, for many years our leading champion in uh, trying to get federal legislation to preempt state laws, and uh, he he was a victim of the Tea Party conservative uh, wave that swept the country in uh, in 2010, and uh, you know things changed back and forth. Um, you know, I, if I if I might add, um, state barriers are a clear uh, direct impediment to uh, communities uh, participating in what could be this uh, marvelous challenge and. 
uh, in the 20 states or so that uh, we've mentioned, but they're not the only legal issues. There are many others that we need to, to work on as well. Uh, for example, we like uh, public-private pi partnerships, and yet the tax laws, the federal tax laws, have what are called private use rules that discourage these uh, partnerships by denying uh, municipalities the right to uh, uh, tax-free municipal bonds if they participate uh, in partnerships with the private sector structured certain ways. We have environmental, health care, transportation, public safety, and other laws that encourage single-use networks rather than multi-use networks where you could have many stakeholders contributing to the single network that could be then used for multiple purposes. We have uh, limitations on access to universal service subsidies. We have FCC rules that adversely affect small providers of all kinds, not just public ones. Uh, the, the program access rules were just made more difficult for small providers. Uh, we've had uh, retransmission consent issues that uh, have yet to be resolved after years of consideration at the agency. Uh, we have problems getting access to uh, residents of multiple dwelling units, and those rules could, uh, could uh, make such access uh, easier. We have predatory pricing and targeted rate discrimination problems that are not addressed well by the FCC's rules. And, and I could go on and on. Pardon? Don't forget poll attachments. Uh, uh, yeah, we have a call coming in. I want to catch this call, ladies and gentlemen, and see uh, who this mm -hmm. is, and then we'll come back to this in a second. Hold on. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation. Do we have a caller? Uh, yeah, hi, Craig. Hey there. Yeah, this is Ron Corvo calling in from uh, Rhode Island. Ron, how are you? <laughs> Not bad. Uh, I, I was just uh, really enjoying the show today and the uh, topics covered. And uh, when we started talking about the use of shared infrastructure, um, <clears throat> you know, I happen to have experience with uh, how uh, many other countries uh, and, and, and other places on earth are uh, very successfully deploying, um, you know, that kind of shared infrastructure and, um, you know, setting up multi-provider networks, uh, setting up competitive pricing. And, uh, you know, as, as you may be aware, I work for a company that makes software that manages these networks. Mm -hmm. And some of our customers offer the lowest cost Internet for the highest speed services on earth. And, uh, you know, this is information being pointed out by the analysts. And, and one of the things that we found out in talking with these providers, they're, they're profitable, they're uh, able to uh, provide a great quality of service and all of that on these modern fiber networks. But the most important thing is because they're not having to build out all of this proprietary private infrastructure, and they're able to make use of, you know, this common resource, uh, you know, the same way that we wind up uh, utilizing uh, the electrical grid, 
the nationwide, uh, you know, um, gas system and local water systems. And and one of the things I, I think that if we're going to get applications uh, really rolling in in education, healthcare, uh, um, and public safety, and and really look at economic development. Um, a lot of the topics that we've touched on in this call uh, are, are going to depend on having these gigabit networks where, from an economic development perspective, uh, I, I think our industry knows a lot of folks that have literally created their own jobs because they have access to the Internet. They have tools like GoToMeeting, Skype, Blog Talk Radio, um, uh, to be able to um, provide them a forum by which they can earn their daily bread. Mm-hmm. And uh, as someone who utilizes the Internet uh, on a daily basis to, to work and to uh, participate in great venues like this, uh, I, I think it, it's critical that we look to how things are being done other places very successfully on Earth with uh, with ideas that really haven't um, uh, been tested uh, greatly here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I that that makes a lot of sense, and I definitely you know appreciate you calling in with that comment. And uh, we'll probably see you at the uh, uh, broadband summit in April, right in Dallas, Ron? Uh, absolutely, you will be seeing us at the broadband summit, and we'll show you um, how our software is helping communities figure out where um, they can build out these networks profitably, connect people and businesses and, and their all of their community anchor institutions uh, at very, very low cost, very, very low OPEX, and uh, a lot of self-service technology. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll, I'll see you there. We're going to have to move on here. But thanks a lot again for calling. Okay. Hey, thank Chris. you. Yeah. Craig, allow me to say thank you for allowing me to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, um, you have to leave. And I would just, I do have to leave, but let's remember that while we look at providers and everything else, politics is still local. The individual in that senator or or, or congressman's district or in uh, that senator or representative's district still holds great sway. And I would suggest, too, that as we try to roll the message out, Make sure people know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems there is a language of individuals such as yourselves that you understand. But if I'm trying to sell this to the average person, how do I sell it, and what do I say to make sure that they understand what I'm trying to uh, to Im- Im- to get them to do? And I think we've got to be careful as we roll out our message that people understand what it is we're talking about. Uh, there are so many folks who don't know anything about gigabytes or anything else, but they do know I want my child to have a good education. I want to have good economic development. I do want to have good medicine. And we need to craft our message so that the average person will understand what it is we're saying. Thank you all for what you do. Craig, thank you for allowing me to be a part of the conversation. And God bless each and every one of you. All right. Great to have you on board again. Mm-hmm. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All righty. Um, there's an interesting point in there, and I want to pose a question to, to Masha first, but others obviously can, can step in, which is 
you know, we in the industry, we here around this table or this microphone, you know, we talk to each other and we're kind of folks in the know. But as an industry, Masha, do you think the industry educates the communities well enough? Do we even as advocates, you know, people like, you know, Susan and Jim and, and Chris Mitchell, are we doing a good job at actually getting the message out to folks? I mean, from your perspective. I, I think we are more in the last few years than before, just judging by the sort of level of information that uh, of, of my non-industry acquaintances. So I, I think that um, I, I think that people are seeing, they're hearing about Google, they're you know they're they're reading things by Susan Crawford and and others, and I think people are becoming more aware. But this is something. This is where I get a chance to uh, put in a plug for our fiber to the home primer. Broadband communities um, develops a uh, what what we call a fiber to the home primer. It's a, a standalone publication uh, called What Fiber Broadband Can Do for Your Community. And it's been, and it tries to explain all these issues in non-technical, um, you know, non-industry-specific terms, so they're, they're intelligible to the average person, and bring up a lot of the issues that Senator Chesterfield was so rightly talking about. That why, you know, why you need broadband if you if you want your kids to be educated, why you need broadband if you want to have access to health care, and so forth. Um, and these, this publication has we. Uh, provide in, in bulk to uh, communities that are trying to rally local support for, for um, high-performance networks, and they've been used very successfully. Uh, the RS Fiber Project in Minnesota, um, for example, um, took about 10,000 of these primers and distributed them to everybody, and in the, they've got eight or nine communities that are uh, getting ready to put in a, a gigabit network, and they m mailed them and gave them to everybody, and got people to um, to, to actually support the formation of, a, of an organization to um, you know to build this network. And the this primer once people read it, they got it. Uh, and it's not just communities, but um, small. Competitive providers are using this too. There's a company called Spiral Internet in uh, California that is also uh, giving out these primers by the dozens and, and hundreds, and we're trying to get people excited about the project. Um, mm -hmm. What? Um, and then this might actually be a good point to uh, to bring Chris in on too, because Chris. I know that you have authored both alone and with some other folks a number of short. Uh, I don't know policy slash tech, you know statements dealing with broadband. Um, do we need to do more of those? And maybe you want to talk about a couple of the ones that maybe you have found most effective at getting the message across that you've used. Sure. Yeah, we've done a number of case studies, um, and uh, I'd say that there's there's more that can be done certainly at this point. I think we might want to focus more on making sure people are aware of them. Um, 
And so, you know, we've written about most recently, uh, Wilson, North Carolina built a network called Greenlight. Um, Wilson is a higher poverty community um, than many. Um, it was really hard hit by the uh, downfall of tobacco and manufacturing, not unlike Bristol. Um, and so we wrote about how they built this incredible fiber to the home network. And then we wrote a second piece that um, explained how Time Warner Cable then um, spent four years and with other industry partners over a million dollars to uh, make sure that no other community could duplicate that success in North Carolina. Um, so, you know, we try to really do a good job of explaining it, um, what how communities have done it, lessons learned. Um, we, we're not some sort of just rah, rah, everything's um, great daisies and sunshine. Uh, we, we we do wrestle with the problems that communities face. Uh, we wrote a um, uh, an examination of um, Burlington, um, which uh, Gary's been involved in terms of turning around. Um, so we try to draw lessons from communities that have struggled. There's not very many communities that have struggled, but we have to wrestle with those that have and make sure that we're learning from them. Uh, you know, these are all available on uh, muninetworks.org. Uh, the website I run, uh, we put up a post almost every day writing about different communities, uh, a lot of the same sorts of people that, that you talk about, Craig. Um, and then we, we put together some fact sheets lately, and we're going to be doing some more of those. Uh, we try to talk in a, in a language that anyone can understand. Um, and we um, in the fact sheets, we have a number of just different examples of the successes that can come out of communities that are able to invest in themselves. Um, and let me just let me just say briefly that um, you know earlier um, a person could be forgiven for taking the, uh, for the impression that Gary and I might disagree on some things, and um, I'm a, a tremendous fan of what Gary's done um, with HBC. It's been a friend of communities. Um, our fear is is not that um, HBC is going to turn into a bad company or anything like that when we encourage communities to build their own networks. It's rather a recognition that HBC is a tremendous community, uh, or is a tremendous company. Um, our fear is that in 10 years, uh, someone might buy it. There might be different management. Um, HBC, probably that's not the case. But for other communities that are working with partners, um, you know, we want to see the community own the network so that you and I aren't doing this show again in five years saying, you know, we need some 10 gigabit projects because all the people who own the one gigabit networks decided to take monopoly profits and just rest on them. Right. That's always a possibility. Um, and I actually have a question that, uh, for Gary in a second, but let me ask a general question uh, to all four and whoever wants to jump in first. Um, in the chat room, there have been a couple of uh, comments made about uh, the unwillingness of folks to share, meaning uh, the water company won't share with the community their their uh, their infrastructure. Uh, electricity companies refuse. Uh, folks don't want to share their telephone poles. So you basically have a community that's driven, you know, that's motivated to, to bring in broadband, uh, but then you have issues of sharing. And I think you have this at, you know, at many levels. You know, agencies don't like to share. Entities don't like to share. How do we get people to, like, to, to go along and, and come together without having to take a two-by-four upside folks' heads? Anybody feel free to jump in on that? Yeah, to some extent, I think you have to recognize that, that um, a lot of communities that have succeeded have done so because they've had champions that are able to get people to work together. Um, you know, just having a municipal power company doesn't mean you're going to have a community network. Uh, most of the municipal power companies haven't done it. 
but most of the communities that have a municipal power company, I'm sorry, most of the communities that have done it do have a municipal power company. The thing is they have people that are willing to, to, to make investments in the community in ways that they may not have. They're people who might be a little bit more entrepreneurial. Um, you know, if it's a water company, if it's something that's owned by the public, then you may have to have a public campaign to put some pressure on them through elected officials. If it's a cooperative that doesn't want to do the investment um, to, to build and change from DSL to fiber, again, you may have to go through some hard efforts to organize people. Um, we saw this, and I'm sure Jim knows much more about this than I do, but there's a, a number of instances in throughout history where waves of, of frustrated um, members of municipal utilities and uh, cooperatives have organized revolts because they were frustrated that their leadership wasn't making the investment that they thought was necessary. Um, you know, public ownership's not a panacea. Uh, it's, it sort of gives you the opportunity to do hard work to make a difference, um, but it's not going to be a given. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you may just have to move ahead without someone and find a different way of of getting assets um, that you need. You know, this is Gary. Chris is absolutely right. Um, uh, I have always insisted, as we have um, tried to help communities, that the key ingredient is vision. Uh, if leaders know why they want to build a network, and if that reason is uh, different than having lower-priced cable and, and Internet, um, those people get things done, and um, and it's a pleasure to work with them. But far too many of the communities we see um, aren't really willing to look closely at what those networks might do for them in the areas we've talked about, economic development, education, and, and health care. And I suspected that Chris and Jim would agree that where there are success stories, um, there are um, there also are people using those networks uh, for community betterment purposes. Yeah, and I would add on to that. It's a terrific point. Um, I would add on to that that where we see successes, there are often communities that failed for several years or were frustrated and they, they overcame their frustration and they um, just kept working toward finding a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, that That is also a great point. One of my great frustrations, and um, I guess all of you who are more intelligent than I could help me out here, but I have never understood why the incumbents when offered the potential to have new networks financed for them, in my in my experience, have always declined the offer, and have instead chosen to fight the project. Well, I, well, I, I was going to ask actually next. Jim, I sure. would be happy if you, but you can go ahead. Well, I'd like to uh, first of all again, agree with Gary and Chris on what makes projects work. But I'd like to also perhaps add a couple of insights as to why um, there is not more cooperation from some of the uh, uh, people that you would wish would be more cooperative. And I think that uh, you can often answer that question by putting yourself in, in their shoes 
and asking uh, what their incentives are. Uh, take take uh, pole attachments, for example, um, under the uh, federal rules and the rules of many uh, states. Uh, uh, telecommunications carriers and cable systems have pole attachment rights, but not providers of Internet access unless they're also uh, telecom carriers and cable systems and not uh, providers of dark fiber service. And um, uh, public, publicly owned utilities and cooperatively owned utilities are exempt from these requirements, and they end up uh, offering access uh, where they don't have to because they're part of the community. From the standpoint of investor-owned utilities, you look at the rules as they apply to them, they can't recover all of their costs because the rules uh, don't let them do it. Um, if they allow people who aren't required, who they're not mandated to allow on their polls, uh, the more they allow, the more money they lose, the more uh, burdensome their jobs on a day-by-day -day basis are, and the more uh, risk of um, electrocutions and various other things are there for them. So from their perspective, because the rules in part are uh, don't make sense, their incentive is not necessarily to act in ways that are best for the community. In the case of the water department, in the case of police chiefs and uh, uh, fire chiefs and things like that, they view themselves as having primary responsibilities and uh, they're very uh, conscious of what they think they need to exercise their responsibilities and are concerned about uh, sharing that would undermine them in, in uh, doing their tasks. What we need to do is to keep building where we can with the uh, public networks which view themselves as being on mission to do what's best for the community, but at the same time also look structurally at the impediments that exist out there that prevent others from making that transition in viewing our local and our national interests first and then working toward making uh, the adjustments necessary uh, to enable them to participate as well. And I would take that out to just one higher level and say that it's a realization that came to me recently sort of studying some of the history of monopolies. And um, that's that Wall Street doesn't look at Comcast like a cable company. It looks at it like a monopoly. And it doesn't care what Comcast does. It just recognizes that Comcast has the capacity to raise prices every year and to not lose customers in doing it. And so, you know, they don't really care if uh, Comcast is investing more. They don't really care if AT&T is investing more. Um, what they care is that they're getting a return on it. And to the extent that any of these major companies that are effectively creatures of Wall Street now, uh, that to the effect that they uh, are doing things that are outside, whether or not it's just going to be uh, a return on investment, um, an immediate return on investment, they start to get concerned and they start to be punished. Um, and so whether it's a community that's willing to, you have a community that's willing to 
build a network for an incumbent, but the incumbent is afraid of losing control. It's afraid of, of inspiring other communities to think outside the box. And so, you know, to some extent, they just want to preserve this present arrangement as long as they can. We came oh. very close in one case of, you know, I, I, I won't mention who it was, a very prominent municipal network. Uh, we came very close to um, partnering with a major incumbent, but from the incumbent's perspective, it it would have had to change its practices to such an extent, its billing practices, its engineering protocols and all of that, to make it possible that even though it wanted to uh, participate as a partner to the municipality, it just couldn't do it. Um, and um, uh, I, I think, though, that the bigger, the bigger reason for them is that uh, from a a broader perspective from you know they look at what they do as uh, setting precedents and um un unless and until they're ready to make a major shift company wide their calculus probably is that they're better off not creating examples that they might have to live with elsewhere uh, than uh, to take advantage of any particular opportunity i've been involved in uh, developing uh, public uh, networks for more than 15 years, and in virtually every case, the community has gone first to the incumbents and offered to work with them to uh, build facilities that would serve everybody's purposes, um, and and they've always, in in virtually every case, either gotten an outright rejection or a, a non-response. And um, that, you know, we'll keep trying, of course, but there's no reason to uh, hope that uh, this uh, this will change anytime soon. Masha, I have a question for you. Did, given, given where we are in terms of trying to, you know, get and often failing to get the large incumbents on board, is the way forward maybe for communities to focus on the mid-tier providers, the smaller local telcos and so forth, you know, the companies like uh, Hiawatha Broadband, uh, and, you know, because I posed this to um, Commissioner Clyburn when she was on the show yesterday, and I even brought it up with, uh, with, with Chairman Janikowski when I had a, a minute to talk to him, you know, it's like, it, it seems like the smaller providers, the WISP, the, telco, the, the, the telecom co-ops, they're the ones willing to partner. They're the ones willing to see the advantage in having the community underwrite the infrastructure, and they come on board and provide services. Maybe we just stop wasting our time with incumbents. Should we go and focus on those smaller players? Um, yeah, yes is the short answer. Um, I mean, there are really two types of, of players. There are the, the competitive providers, such as Hiawatha, which have done a, a fabulous job of going in where nobody else will, either on their own or, or in partner, partnership with communities. Uh, and, and then there are also um, many small small incumbents, the you know, the rural telephone companies, which tend to be very... Um, community-oriented, economic development-oriented. Um, you know, they they are often the largest employer in a community. They've they've often been providing services for a hundred years or or more. Um, so those companies have been 
uh, the the small incumbents have been often very willing to uh, to partner with um, uh, with with communities in building in operating networks that communities build, as I I think you've written about, Craig. Mm -hmm. um, some, however, they are. Uh, those companies tend to be much more constrained financially. So while they are often very good operating partners, they're generally not going to be sources of, um, you know, of, of financing for building networks. The competitive providers tend to be more plugged into um, sources of financing. Mm -hmm. I want to shift to uh, prescriptive mode here, what I would call radio consulting mode. Let's start giving people some 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 takeaways, uh, action steps that they might want to to address here. You know, looking with the toward this gig city and every state uh, objective. Uh, Masha, what are I don't know two, maybe three main things that a uh, community can do to rally support for broadband initiatives? Okay, well, in addition to get, getting the fiber to the home primer, which I, I talked about <laughs> earlier, um, yep. the biggest thing probably is for local officials to commit themselves to it and throw their support behind it. And, I mean, that's in a way what this, um, coming back to the source of our discussion, Janikowski's uh, gigabit challenge will be good for, um, that it, you know, it throws some, some weight behind this. And they basically have to go out and talk to everybody as, as Senator Chesterfield was saying, um, to the business community, to real estate owners, senior citizen centers, school officials, um, and everybody. And, um, for example, Pat Kennedy of, of Lit San Leandro told me that he had, who was trying to build a public-private partnership, who is in fact building a uh, <coughs> public-private network in San Leandro, California, uh, told me he had spent much of his last year or two just talking to talking to people at public and sm private and small meetings and trying to get everybody on board and understanding um, you know what what this network could could do for them individually and as a city. Um, one other thing is I think hasn't been mentioned is to join the Fiber to the Home Council, which has a lot of resources. And is in fact uh, developing a whole website for um, for um, communities that that want to build their uh, build fiber to the home networks, but don't quite know where to start. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, Jim, let's talk about. Uh, for example, in Iowa, they have certain types of laws, such as, for example. Uh, providers there are charged property tax on whatever network infrastructure they build on top of other basic business taxes. And they're only one, it seems like a tax is specific to those providers. Should we be leading, we as in communities and, and stakeholders, be leading an effort to review and try to get changed certain laws that work against the providers as well as those laws that work against communities? It's hard to say on a blanket basis because um, situations differ from state to state and uh, uh, the political strength of opponents and proponents uh, varies from time to time. Um, there are uh, some states 
where uh, if if you have the political support and you have the need, uh, then it makes sense to go for it. There are other states where you may have a need, but if you uh, propose favorable legislation, there's a good chance the incumbents will hijack it and um, add amendments that would make things worse than they currently are. Uh, I'd say that as a general matter, uh, it certainly makes sense to uh, understand the uh, circumstances in in your particular state, uh, but before uh, taking action on it, uh, that that would require a, a very careful analysis of a lot of factors on a state by state basis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, this is definitely this is definitely the time though to become uh, at at the very least aware of the circumstances to study and find out what your circumstances are uh, to plug in to what I hope will be a, a um, an increasingly active national dialogue on what it means to be a, a gigabit nation uh, to you know to just cite the name of your program and where we are now and what it will take to get there uh, I'm looking forward to a very healthy dialogue uh, at the very least, people should plug in to the resources that already exist. Uh, your uh, program and your writings, uh, Chris has a great website with a lot to do. Uh, everybody who's listening to this should, sub- should subscribe to Broadband Communities uh, magazine, uh, either online or uh, in paper. It's it's the best organ in the industry to uh, cover the breadth of uh, uh, issues that we're talking about. Uh, I invite you to visit our website, get on our daily list, uh, and and just um, uh, keep your ears up. There's going to be a lot to fill them in the next few months. Mm-hmm. Gary, uh, speaking to other providers, the smaller providers, what's one, maybe two pieces of advice that you would give them to be more aggressive at um, partnering with communities and and uh, getting broadband working that way. Well, I I think the obvious is that uh, by working closely with communities, uh, Masha mentioned the RS Fiber project, um, and and there are other examples, but. It's it's a way to um, leverage capital, so that's an obvious advantage. Uh, I think that um, a provider can also be helpful uh, in in making communities aware uh, of of the kinds of things that can accrue to uh, a broadband network. I mean, as we look at our area. Uh, all of our mature networks now exist in communities that are larger than they were when the networks were built. I mean that that's pretty dramatic uh, testimony, I think, to to the value. Uh, and and in each case, people are finding interesting ways to uh, use the networks. So I think another thing that communities can um, 
can get from a provider is is some of the expertise uh, in communicating with the residential uh, portion of the community on why this is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, I'm going to channel a question from or a comment from one of our audience members in the chat room. What can we do to get more technology companies to engage in these uh, efforts, struggles for broadband? Because if you look from the largest software companies like Microsoft on down, they would benefit immensely from having these gig networks in communities, but they seem to be not active, actively engaged in all of these discussions. How do we get them on board? Yeah, that could have been me asking that question in the chat room because it's a question I've been wrestling with for a while. Um, it's it's a very good question. Um, I think a lot of tech companies um, are run by people, particularly I think the, the smaller, more entrepreneurial ones, uh, by people who are really busy, probably working 16 to 20 hours a day on some enthusiastic project that's fueled by Red Bull, um, expecting them to get inspired and, and to know what's going on on their own is probably not smart. Um, We need to, when we know these people personally, I think we need to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I've I've heard about this uh, SpringNet network in Springfield, Missouri, which is just doing an incredible job of making sure that businesses have really fast networks and great co-location space that's affordable. Or, you know, how would that help you out? Um, You know, and and just saying that... um, uh, I should say, um, if you don't know them directly, then maybe even trying to reach out to them through other people. Um, because I think many of these companies are really focused on the area in which they work, and they don't know the potential. They don't know that there's a real precedent across America. Um, you know, we, we talk about the 150 towns that have built their own networks um, that connect just about everyone, but there's hundreds more that have built much smaller networks that connect local businesses, maybe even just a single business park. Um, it's a pretty small investment that has a pretty massive return. And, uh, you know, if people want to contact me, um, I'm happy to try and connect them with some of the ones that have been public about how they built those smaller networks. Uh, we wrote about it a little bit in some of our case studies. Um but, you know, it's not just to, to broaden it and to come back to Masha's advice, which was good. I would expand it to say, you know, get some people together that you know, form a group that meets occasionally, and talks about these issues, what you've seen other communities do to solve the problem, create mailing lists. Um, one of the things that, that worked very well in Lafayette when they were organizing was that they actually took an ad out in the paper and they basically said, you know, these people, your neighbors, um, have signed on because they want better internet or they're supporting a municipal project. But they're doing things to get visibility and spread the word. Um, and so when you do have an opportunity, you can act on it. Um, those are the communities um, that I think uh, that had that groundwork in place that were best poised to appeal to Google. Um, and I think Google's announcement um, created more of those networks, but we can't have enough of them. So it's something that people should be doing. Um, and they should be, when they form those communities, they should be circulating sample letters and sending letters to all of their elected officials explaining uh, their difficulties and desires. Mm-hmm. And I, I would point out that, that um, a, a lot of tech companies are doing this already. I mean, as Chris mentioned somewhere 
in there. That, in other words, not just Google, but the Let's San Leandro project was started by the, you know, by the president of a local um, technology company in in San Leandro who wanted to have better um, better connectivity there, and the, the the whole tech industry in North Carolina was very solidly, um, you know, supportive of the not to ultimately to no avail, but but of, of the right of municipalities to build their own networks. And, you know, uh, the tech communities in Kansas City and Baltimore and other places have been very organized and very vocal. So it, it's, not that it, it's not that it isn't happening anywhere. It just isn't happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. We, are, um, we are about to um, run, run out of time here, and I want to definitely thank all of our uh, panelists and our audience. We've had a pretty big audience today. We've had lots of uh, uh, chit chat going on in, in the chat room and so forth. So I, you know, I feel like this conversation, this show, was very uh, was very successful. Um, in conclusion, I'd like to say that you know, looking at where we are, looking at last week's announcement, that you know, two things I think we really got to work on is number one, using this to to start to believe in a a specific vision, you know, believe in a gigabit vision, believe that there are resources and people that can make it happen uh, and that we can get there. Maybe it doesn't happen by by 2015, maybe it's two years after that, but we've got to start. We've got to start moving. And maybe one, you know, city per state is is a low threshold, but we've got to at least get engaged and moving forward in that direction and then let things build on top of each other. Uh, the second thing I would say is that um, uh, stakeholders, recruiting allies, recruiting champions at all levels, local, state, and national, is going to be key. You know, I see folks on, you know, the same philosophical end of the spectrum, but don't get along with each other. You know, we have public entities within a community, and they don't want to share resources. If we believe that having having high-speed infrastructure is our future, is, is the growth of America, then there has to be willingness to reduce barriers, increase partnerships and alliances, rather than continue to work in, in, in silos. And with that, I'm going to, to close off. Uh, I, I thank you again, our, our panelists, for being here. Uh, we'll definitely be in touch again because we always see each other, Lord knows. And, um, and, and also, you know, I encourage our audience to keep coming back, keep participating. Uh, there will be a lot of interesting shows, a lot of interesting community projects that are going to be highlighted in the next few weeks. So with that being said, um, thank you, audience. Thank you, panelists. Have a great day, and we'll see you online soon. Take care. Thanks for the opportunity, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. All righty, folks. Good night.